This week's news from the Soviet Union should emphasize what we've already known all too well. Outer space, which we hope and pray will be a peaceful laboratory, could provide the arena for what Winston Churchill once called the Wizard War. And if we're not strong enough in that so-called Wizard War, we are doomed. Each time that we pause, we have had shock from Soviet efforts in space, from Sputnik in 1958 to the man in the spacesuit of yesterday. That was Vice President of the United States, Hubert H. Humphrey, responding to Alexei Leonov's Spacewalk. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you're listening to Episode 57 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Jiminy 3 with Gus Grissom and John Young. On April 13, 1964, the Monday after the flight of Jiminy Titan 1, the press gathered in the auditorium at the Manned Spacecraft Center to learn who would be the first to fly the Gemini spacecraft. Robert Gilruth, director of the Manned Spacecraft Center, introduced the four astronauts assigned to Gemini 3, the Prime and the Backup crews. Commander of the first team was Virgil I. Grissom, Gus. His crewmate was John W. Young. Backing up the mission were Walter M. Sherall and Thomas P. Stafford. The stocky, crew-cut Grissom, an Air Force major, was an old-timer in NASA's manned spaceflight program. He was one of the original Mercury 7 astronauts selected five years earlier. He already had 15 minutes of spacecraft flying time as the astronaut on the suborbital flight of the Liberty Bell 7 in July 1961, Project Mercury's second manned mission. The Gemini 3 mission would make Grissom the world's first two-time space flyer. For more information on Gus, listen to episodes 16, 17, and 27. Grissom's crewmate was John W. Young. He was born in San Francisco, California in 1930. At the age of 18 months, due to the Great Depression, he moved with his family to Orlando, Florida, where he attended grade school and later Orlando High School until graduating in 1948. Young earned a Bachelor of Science degree in Aeronautical Engineering with highest honors from the Georgia Institute of Technology in 1952. While attending, he became a member of the National Military Honor Society, Scabbard and Blade, and Sigma Chi Fraternity. After graduating, Young entered the United States Navy. He served as fire control officer on the destroyer USS Laws 
until June 1953 and completed a tour in the Sea of Japan during the Korean War. He was sent to flight training and was assigned to Fighter Squadron 103 for four years, flying F 9 Cougars from the USS Coral Sea and F 8 Crusaders from the USS Forrestal. After training at the U.S. Naval Test Pilot School in 1959, Young was assigned to the Naval Air Test Center at Naval Air Station Patuxic River, Maryland, for three years. His test projects included evaluations of the XF 8U 3 Crusader III and F 4 Phantom II fighter weapon systems. In 1962, he set world time to climb records to 3,000 meter and 25,000 meter altitudes in the Phantom and was maintenance officer of Flighter Squadron 143. Young was selected by NASA in September of 1962. He was the first of the astronaut Group 2 to fly in space. Replacing Thomas P. Stafford as pilot of Gemini 3 when Alan Shepard, the original commander, was grounded. Here's a clip of John Young's introduction Navy Lieutenant Commander John W. Young. It's a wonderful opportunity to be able to make a significant contribution to the United States to research and development. And I believe in the long run for the human race as a whole. I couldn't turn down a challenge like that. The world is duly informed that cigar smoking John Young was born in San Francisco, educated in the South, has green eyes, draws cartoons for a hobby. Within a week after they had been publicly assigned to the mission, the Gemini 3 astronauts were busy training for it. Of course, all astronauts were in training from the time they joined NASA. But for Grissom and Young, Sherall and Stafford, the focus now shifted to a specific mission. Their first assignment was the Gemini Mission Simulator at the McDonnell plant in St. Louis. This training complex included a flight simulator that matched the inside of a Gemini spacecraft and provided its riders with almost all the sights, noises, and shakings. They could encounter in a real flight, from pre launch to post landing. Because astronauts varied in size and missions differed in goals and onboard tasks, no two spacecraft were identical, and the mission simulators had to be altered and updated for each flight. But the simulator in St. Louis had not yet been engineered to an exact replica of Spacecraft 3. So, the 36 hours that Grissom and Young spent in it over the next two months, as well as the 34 hours that Sherall and Stafford spent in it, were devoted mainly to learning general systems and operations. On July 10, 1964, McDonnell workmen began taking the simulator apart to ship it to Houston to be configured to match Spacecraft 3. The second Gemini mission simulator was already at the Cape, although not yet updated for Gemini 3. That was supposed to have been done by mid July, but it was not finished until October. Final checkout 
took the better part of a month, and the Gemini 3 crews could not begin flying simulations in Florida before November 9th. Even when the simulator was not available, the astronauts had plenty to do. On May 10th and 11th, all four were in St. Louis to review a mock-up of the cockpit. In the months that followed, they kept a close eye on their ship, watching as it passed through each series of tests and inspections in the McDonnell plant. They also joined in the testing itself. During the second phase of systems test in October and November, Grissom and Young spent more than 14 hours in the cockpit, nine of them while the spacecraft was undergoing altitude chamber tests. Sherall and Stafford were not far behind with eight cockpit hours. During July and August, the Gemini 3 astronauts were in Dallas for a training program on the Moving Base Abort Simulator created by Ling Timco Vault Incorporated. This device projected the Gemini 3 launch profile in striking detail, complete with such cues as noise, vibration, and a wide range of motions that might be caused by a launch anomaly. The trainees also learned how to deal with any number of booster or spacecraft systems and malfunctions. Throughout their training, the prospective spacemen also kept their more mundane flying skills intact. Each managed to average 25 hours a month in the cockpit of an Air Force jet. They also put in more than 200 hours apiece in innumerable briefings three of them formal affairs that lasted two days, each at Houston, St. Louis, and Cape Kennedy, the others an ongoing series of informal familiarizations that were part of each training activity, periodic reviews of mission plans, physical examinations, fittings for flight suits, sessions on experiments to be carried on the spacecraft, and on biomedical aspects of the mission, and any number of other operational matters helped fill the hours to overflowing. In October 1964, the Gemini 3 crews practiced in getting out of their spacecraft after it landed. The three-part program began with a review of egress procedures in the Gemini mock-up at the McDonnell plant, then moved to the flotation tank at Ellington Air Force Base, just up the road from the Manned Spacecraft Center, abbreviated MSC. The tank was a king-size swimming pool, where the crews rehearsed both with and without spacesuits, climbing in and out of a boilerplate spacecraft that was either floating or submerged. Grissom and Young completed the third phase of this training in emergency egress from a floating spacecraft during February 1965. They rode a boat out into the Gulf of Mexico where a model spacecraft was dumped into the water. Then, fully suited, they went through the post-landing checklist and practiced getting out of the spacecraft and onto their one-man life rafts. The crew also took a refresher course in parachute landing that month. During November and December of 1964, 
The four astronauts spent part of their time in Johnsville, Pennsylvania at the Naval Air Development Center, the site of a man-rated centrifuge run by the Aviation Medical Acceleration Laboratory. The first phase of the centrifuge had taken place in July and August of 1963, when Gemini controls and displays had been evaluated and all the astronauts had been spun through the accelerator for launch and re-entry. For pilots not yet assigned to a mission, the second phase simply provided more time of the same. But, for the crews of Gemini 3 and 4, it was an important part of the mission training. They worked in pressure suits and the others trained in shirt sleeves. Grissom rode the centrifuge for nine and a half hours. Young, for eleven hours. Sherall and Stafford spent only a little less time in the centrifuge than the prime crew. After the mission simulator at Cape Kennedy had been updated to match Spacecraft 3, both crews began working in it for the next four months. During that time, Grissom put in more than 77 hours flying his mission on the ground, rehearsing every phase of his planned flight again and again, not only when everything went right, but also when something went wrong. Young put in even more time than Grissom over 85 hours in the Cape Simulator. Sherall managed to get in 43 hours and Stafford 54. In January 1965, Grissom and his fellow crewmen were back in Dallas for more work on the abort simulator, this time focused on how best to deal with each type of booster or spacecraft malfunction. By this time, training was over. Grissom had run through 225 aborts and Young 154. Sherall and Stafford each totaled only slightly less than Young. When Spacecraft 3 arrived at Complex 19, the crewmen resumed their active role in spacecraft testing, sandwiching this exercise between trips to Houston for egress and parachute training. Grissom and Young still managed to spend almost 19 hours in the cockpit, beginning with the pre-mate flight test on February 14th and ending with the final simulated flight on March 18th. Sherall and Stafford got in more than 14 hours of cockpit time. Altogether, the prime crew had logged 33 hours in their spacecraft before the final launch countdown began, and the backup crew had spent 22 hours. Nine months of grueling work were ready to pay off. By February 1965, Grissom was sure that they were ready to go. NASA agreed. Rumors already put Gemini's first manned flight earlier than the officially announced April or May, and NASA Administrator James Webb, speaking at Nebraska Wesleyan University in Lincoln, hinted that the launch might come in late March. The men were ready, and the hardware was nearly ready. Here's a NASA clip on the Gemini hardware. The first manned flight was now imminent, supported by the results of two successful unmanned flights. Gemini 3, received at Cape Kennedy on January 4th, was being prepared to tackle the main objectives of the Gemini program. Gemini will be our first space program to fly long-duration missions and to develop techniques of rendezvous and docking necessary for lunar landing. 
Gemini prepares the foundation for the advanced spaceflight missions to come. McDonnell finished building Spacecraft 3 in December of 1963 and moved it from the production floor to the White Room in the St. Louis plant. Engineering changes and equipment installation filled the next six months. Despite some NASA worries about tight schedules, the spacecraft was ready to begin the first phase of systems testing by the end of May 1964. The Development Engineering Inspection, abbreviated DEI, the first of the periodic reviews to make sure that McDonnell was giving NASA just what it wanted, was held on June 9th and 10th. This review was chiefly a close look at the modules to be tested to see that they matched specifications and were actually ready to begin testing. The DEI produced its share of changes, but nothing stood in the way of getting on with the test. While Spacecraft 3 was moving through the McDonnell plant, Gemini program manager Charles Matthews took a step that showed the program had entered a new phase. During July, he set up a Gemini Configuration Control Board to be the one official route for all configuration changes in order to provide continuity and coordination. Each Monday morning, Matthews met with the heads of the Gemini offices of Program Control, Spacecraft, Vehicles and Missions, and test operations to review all proposed changes and to pass on them, and every change now had to be formally presented and justified. When the board met for the first time on July 27th, the development era of Gemini had clearly ended. From then on, the main concerns of the program were production and operations. McDonnell completed its test of the Spacecraft 3 modules on September 12, 1964, and was ready to mate them. On September 21st, Scott H. Simpkinson, Chief of Gemini Test Operations, arrived in St. Louis at the head of 22 engineers from GPO and other MSC elements to join the launch preparation group at MSC's resident McDonnell office for the second major review of Spacecraft 3, the Module Test Review. Twelve teams under the review board took a careful look at results from the first phase of testing, just completed, and reported their findings to the board, which announced the next day that the modules of Spacecraft 3 were indeed ready to be mated and that the second phase of systems testing could begin. Spacecraft 3's third major review began on December 3rd as the first half of a two-part spacecraft acceptance review. The spacecraft had completed all systems tests except its last, the simulated flight. After its review of the test results, the acceptance board allowed McDonnell to proceed with the flight simulation. When this test was finished on December 21st, the board met for the second part of its task, a study of all test results, documentation, and overall spacecraft status. Three days after the simulated flight on Christmas Eve, the board had determined that Spacecraft 3 was acceptable for delivery. 
After the holidays, the spacecraft was loaded aboard a C-124, which delivered it to Cape Kennedy early Monday evening, January 4, 1965. By this time, the concept that a fully checked out and integrated spacecraft could be delivered was accepted. Work in the industrial area at the Cape from the time the craft arrived until it was transferred to the launch complex centered on putting it in shape to fly by clearing up manufacturing shortages and installing seats and pyrotechnics rather than by testing, with two major exceptions. Because this was the first manned Gemini spacecraft, it was the subject of a special communications test at the Merritt Island Launch Area Radar Range. The spacecraft communication systems were checked out in a radio frequency environment that matched as closely as possible the conditions they would meet in orbit. Testing of the spacecraft propulsion system was the other exception. Spacecraft 3 went through a complete end-to-end propulsion system verification test program, including static firing, partly to check out procedure and gear, and partly to build some confidence in the system whose development had been fraught with problems, and which were not fully qualified yet. Even with these two special tasks, however, Spacecraft 3 was ready to move to the launch pad a month after it arrived at the Cape. The launch vehicle for Gemini 3, abbreviated GLV-3, was late reaching the Cape due to a long delay in launching Gemini 2. GLV-3 had, in fact, been built and tested in Baltimore very quickly. It was completed early in June 1964. The vehicle passed its horizontal test and finished its checkout in the vertical test facility by the last day of July. It took three weeks to get through its combined systems acceptance test and review by the vehicle acceptance team. When the team approved GLV-3 on August 21st, GLV-2 was still sitting on the launch pad in Florida, so the Gemini Project Office decided to have the Martin crew in Baltimore install the engineering changes on GLV-3 that were to have been done by the Cape. After looking over these changes, the acceptance team ordered a second combined test. The test was rerun and the vehicle was approved, and on October 9th, the team once again accepted GLV-3. Martin Baltimore formally turned it over to the Air Force on October 27th. Since Gemini 2 was still not launched, the Baltimore crew installed another set of modifications that had been slated for the Cape, finishing in mid-January. Now there was room at the Cape for GLV-3, but the Air Force could no longer spare the C-133B that had carried the first two launch vehicles to Florida. A converted Boeing 377 Stratocruiser, nicknamed Pregnant Guppy, had to serve instead, although it could not hold both stages at the same time. By making two trips, both stages were delivered to the Cape by January 23rd. Two days later, GLV-3 was standing on the launch pad waiting for the spacecraft, which joined it on February 5th. The pace then slowed somewhat as pre-mate tests of the spacecraft proved troublesome. 
Nevertheless, spacecraft and launch vehicle were mechanically mated on February 17th, less than a month after the launch of Gemini 2. Another month was ample time to complete systems testing, and the simulated flight test on March 18th concluded the task of checking out the hardware for Gemini 3. Now let's move on to the objectives of the Gemini 3 flight. The precise scope of the mission remained uncertain until very nearly the eve of the flight. In April of 1963, the Gemini Titan III mission directive was, quote, to demonstrate and evaluate the capabilities of the spacecraft and launch vehicle system and the procedures necessary for the support of future long-duration and rendezvous missions, end quote. But that was a broad scope and did not clearly specify how Gemini 3 would accomplish its objective. There were key questions such as how long the mission would last and how its specific objectives were to be met. In 1963, NASA headquarters had tentatively approved a three-orbit flight suggested by the program office, but now this seemed too short a mission to use the rendezvous evaluation pod, and to check out spacecraft radar and maneuvering systems. If the mission could not be lengthened, some other means needed to be found to demonstrate and evaluate rendezvous. And equally unclear was how so short a flight could do much to prepare for future long-duration missions. MSC's Flight Operations Division did prepare a tentative mission plan on October 1963 that outlined possible use of the pod during the second orbit of a three-orbit mission. But the matter was settled when on January 4, 1965, NASA headquarters decided to remove the rendezvous pod from the Gemini 3 mission. The question of mission duration surfaced again in the summer of 1964. Word leaked to the press that Grissom and Young, backed by the Astronaut Activities Office, were pressing for an open-ended mission, that is, leaving it up to the crew to decide how many orbits to try for after Spacecraft 3 was in orbit. The Gemini Project Office was averse to this idea since the tracking network was then geographically limited and could only fully cover three orbits. Going beyond that on the first flight might be risky. NASA headquarters again stepped in and squelched the idea. When a reporter asked Grissom what he thought about the decision, the answer was a curt, quote, We can do all the testing of the spacecraft we need in three trips, end quote. One of the first order objectives of Gemini 3 one that had to be achieved for the mission to be judged a success, was to demonstrate and evaluate the capability to maneuver the spacecraft in orbit using the Orbital Attitude and Maneuvering System, abbreviated OAMS or OMS. Early planning thus called for several OMS firing. The reason for these firings suddenly expanded in January 1965. An author, Martin Caden, wrote a science fiction book called Marooned. In the book, the spacecraft's retro rockets failed to fire, leaving the astronauts stranded in space.
NASA headquarters sent Flight Operations in Houston a set of preliminary data with orders to revise the flight plan to protect the Gemini 3 crew against the danger of being stranded in space due to a retro rocket failure. Headquarters proposed three OMS maneuvers to place the spacecraft in a fail-safe orbit from which it would re-enter the atmosphere whether the retro rockets fired or not. Actually, Gemini orbits were too low to be permanent, so spacecraft re-entry was inevitable. What the fail-safe maneuvers were designed to achieve was the spacecraft's return promptly enough to ensure that the crew survived. Coming as it did, less than three months before the planned launch, the new demand threw mission planning into turmoil. But the response was rapid. A revised, tentative plan was ready in a little more than a month, and the final plan followed on March 4th. The new plan called for firing the aft thrusters to free the spacecraft from the second stage of the launch vehicle, adding about 3 meters per second to its speed and putting it in an elliptical orbit with a perigee of 122 kilometers and an apogee of 182 kilometers. Just before first perigee, about an hour and a half into the flight over Texas, a burst from the forward thruster would cut 20 meters per second from the spacecraft velocity and convert its orbit to a near circular 122 by 130 kilometers. During the second pass over the Indian Ocean, some two hours and 20 minutes into the mission, would come a series of out-of-plane burns, totaling 4 meters per second, a part of the former flight plan to check out the ohms, with no bearing on the fail-safe plan. Finally, over Hawaii on the third round, there was a pre-retro fire burn to reduce speed by 28 meters per second, putting the spacecraft into an elliptical of re-entry orbit with a perigee of 63 kilometers. Another relative latecomer to Gemini 3 was a set of experiments. Although Project Mercury had included some in-orbit experiments, no one seemed to have given much thought to Gemini in the context until Mercury ended in 1963. That summer, the headquarters office of Space Sciences began looking for proposals. The first experiment had been prompted by signs of radiation damage to cells after earlier flights, the biological effects being in some cases greater than might have been predicted for the length of exposure. This was a matter of special concern in light of plans for long-duration manned spaceflight. Human blood samples were to be exposed to a known quantity and quality of radiation, both in the spacecraft and on the ground, during the zero-gravity phase of the mission. The frequency of various chromosomal aberrations in both samples could then be compared. The experiment was wholly self-contained in a half-kilogram hermetically sealed aluminum box that had held the blood samples, a radiation source, and instrumentation equipment. It was mounted on the right-hand hatch. The co-pilot had only to twist the handle 
and push it in to start the irradiation of the blood samples. 20 minutes later, he would twist the handle in the opposite direction and pull it out to stop the experiment. Word of these actions relayed to the ground would allow them to be duplicated. The second experiment was designed to explore the possibility that cells might be directly affected by low gravity, that long-term weightlessness might produce changes with, prop with important implications for prolonged space flight. Because the effects were easier to detect in simple cell systems than in complex organisms, and because theory argued that effects would appear only in cells upward of one micron across, the eggs of a sea urchin were selected as the experimental material. The eggs were to be fertilized at the start of the experiment, and the possible changes brought about by low gravity observed at several stages of the development. The cell growth experiment was also self-contained in a 0.67 kilogram cylinder that was mounted on the left-hand hatch and worked by the command pilot. The handle had to be turned five times, once half an hour before flight to fertilize the eggs, then four times in flight to fix the dividing cells at specific stages of growth in successive samples. Each time the handle was turned, the fact was relayed to the laboratory where the action would be duplicated on an identical package. Results from these simultaneous experiments would be compared later. A third experiment dealt with communications failure during re-entry. Spacecrafts falling back into the atmosphere are sheathed in an ionized plasma that blocks all radio communications a source of much concern in at least two Mercury missions. In the first manned orbital flight with John Glenn in Friendship 7, the five-minute blackout followed a signal that the capsule's heat shield was unlatched. Although the signal was wrong, Mercury Control spent an agonizing five minutes until the radio link was restored. Then, in the very next flight, Scott Carpenter's Aurora 7 overshot its planned landing point by 400 kilometers because the capsule was misaligned at retrofire. In either case, communications with the returning spacecraft would have made many hearts beat more calmly. Research had shown that for small objects, adding fluid to the ionized plasma during the re-entry blackout could restore communication by lowering the plasma frequency enough to allow UHF radio transmission to get through. Whether the same techniques would work for an object as large as Gemini was now to be tested. A water expulsion system was installed on the inside surface of one of the landing gear doors, relics of the days when landing skids were used with its paraglider wing. The experiment was fully self-contained except for a starting switch inside the cabin to be thrown by the co-pilot when the spacecraft had fallen to about 90 kilometers. At that point, the plasma sheath would surround the spacecraft, blacking out communications. Water would be automatically injected into the plasma in timed pulses for the next two and a half minutes, while ground stations monitored and recorded UHF radio reception. 
Thanks for listening to this archive episode of the Space Rocket History Podcast. If you are financially able, please support the podcast by going to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and clicking on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks.